Welcome, everyone. So are you tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Well, you've come to the right place. Here, we cut through the world of surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths. Here, we dive into the dark waters where strange creatures move. Here, we're free to be that foolish knight who lunges at windmills and who lights up the world with his magical vision. It's uh, all too much, says George Harrison. That's true. But all the more reason to jump into it and intoxicate yourself with life's infinite profusion. After all, you don't discover new lands by sticking close to the shore, do you? This is the wisdom of, and coming up today, Heraclitus. The times, they are a-changing. On my return to this podcast here, I, I don't really know what uh, what's the uh, term for the opposite of uh, clamoring for, but whatever it is, I'm here, I'm back. And on this kind of mighty comeback, I'll offer up a, a traditional uh, Canadian greeting. Hello? I'm sorry. But all this, this kind of low self-esteem and, dare I say, uh, self-loathing has really got me thinking. Thinking about being pre and post anything in clinical terms is sucky. Like, uh, like our poor guy today, Heraclitus here. He just wants to tell us about uh, change and rivers and fires or something. But how does he get, uh, how does he get categorized? Pre-Socratic. Oh yeah, what's your group? Are you part of the, uh, the Enlightenment, the uh, Stoics? No, no, no. Uh, we are grouped into before another dude group. That said, uh, if pre can be a, a touch insulting, like imagine if we called uh, the first, uh, the original rock and rollers, we called them uh, pre-Elvistics or pre-Elvisions. Like, sorry, Chuck Berry and uh, Sister Rosetta Thorpe. You simply belong to the pre-real start. Uh, we got this uh, lily white mama's boy over here. But if pre is insulting, post, post can be downright embarrassing. Like right here in the world of podcasting, we live in the post Joe Rogan podcasting world. You know, like, like, a million other pathetic white fellows out there, I was sitting at home just staring at myself in the mirror, a full-length mirror, not that dissimilar from a, a certain scene in uh, Silence of the Lambs, uh, you know which one I'm talking about. But I said to myself, hey, you, you in there, you're a short, funny-looking guy. You have bizarre, unfounded opinions that are completely riddled with confirmation bias and YouTube-based knowledge. And you know what? The world just has to hear them. So here we are. 
So really, though, honestly, thanks to all you dear listeners, uh, your continued support, uh, your smashing of like buttons, uh, subscribing and commenting and and using all of our, our hashtags that we throw out there. It really makes it all the better for this little uh, post boy podcaster. And since you all have done that for us, how about we do something for our marginalized pre-fella here, Heraclitus? Wow. Well, you know, that's the first time I've heard you say something accurate. Unfounded opinions with YouTube-based knowledge. Yep, that about um, sums it up. Okay, well, so since you uh, mentioned River in there somewhere, I may as well uh, start with that. Okay, so so what Heraclitus, a very enigmatic figure, by the way, is reported to have said is this. He said that one cannot step into the same river twice. So, um, what does he mean by this exactly? Well, I think that here he's saying more than the obvious thing that, uh, that no two things are precisely alike. What he's fundamentally saying is that No one thing is ever the same thing twice. So, if you step into the the same river twice, you're not really stepping into it twice for the reason that the river is always flowing and therefore changing. And so, it's never the same river as it was in any moment in the past. Actually, you know, I think maybe Heraclitus also thinks that the reason one can't step into the same river twice is because not just the river, but also the one who steps into it is always changing too, and so is never at any two moments identical with themselves. Now, that everything is in a, is in a constant state of flux is well known by, uh, by scientists and physicists today, of course. But by anyone who studies physical phenomena. To them, it's, it's well known that energy transformations and uh, processes and growth and degeneration and that nothing is exactly repeated is what characterizes reality. As, uh, as Max Born said, the fact is, it's a restless universe. Actually, In this sense, I think Heraclitus would have uh, felt more at home today than he did in his own time and intellectual culture. Anyway, but here's the thing. That everything is in flux may be the accepted uh, orientation of science, but I don't think it is for most of us. It's not something most of us are, are comfortable with, to say the least. To put it bluntly, on the whole, we tend to resist change. I mean, we often live according to to maxims and creeds and uh, traditions that we know can be questioned or have become meaningless. You know, like, uh, like father, like son. But how can this be true if, if no two things are identical? It can't. And it shouldn't be. And uh, then there are all our generalizations and our, our naming of things. I mean, we have this inherent tendency, it seems, to, to be much more attracted to similarities than to differences. And this is heavily reflected in our language, in our semantics. For example, as, a, as one commentator has put it, we always speak of falling in love rather than of, uh, of fallings in loves. 
To put it in the first way, what it does is it dismisses the differences of each of our experiences in love. I mean, after all, every such experience is unique to itself and, it's, and it constitutes its own little world. Everything has its own particularity. Love ten years ago is different from love today. Actually, um, you know what? This reminds me a bit of what Nietzsche said about concepts and about our uh, constant conceptualizing. Essentially, what he tried to warn us of is that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that what conceptualization does is it substitutes the general for the particular. In other words, a concept doesn't refer to some unique particular thing or experience in itself but only to the class to which it belongs. Or, in other words, as Nietzsche says, it refers only to countless other similar things, but things which are, strictly speaking, not equivalent with one another. I mean, um, take the concept of, uh, well, I don't know, a- any color, like, like say, uh, red. So, how do we get red as a concept? Well, Nietzsche says that what we do is we get it by ignoring or doing away with the features that differentiate one thing from another. But this is, a, this is somewhat strange, though, because in reality, there are only different particular intensities of light, like crimson and carmine and so on, where, where no two shades are alike. So ultimately, then, red is just an ideal. It's an abstraction from particular, similar, but not equivalent realities. Maybe um, one way of saying this, and maybe Heraclitus would agree, is that nature knows no concepts. No, it's we human beings who create concepts, and we do it because it makes the world familiar to us. Because, well... By conceptualizing it, we're, uh, we're, so to speak, making it in our own image. Now, I think that one danger Nietzsche sees in this, in our uh, conceptualizing of everything, is that we're no longer in, in genuine contact with, no longer touching the actual particularities of the sensual world. And um, not only this, but, but in our turning of things into concepts, which is to say into fixed objects or essences, we're getting further and further away from from putting ourselves in a position to be, as Nietzsche says, swept away by, by sudden impressions and sensuous perceptions. No, instead, we're living in a world of cold abstractions, where we generalize all our perceptions and in so doing rid them of their initial and primal color and vitality and sensuality. Or, um, to go back to Heraclitus, we're no longer truly bathing in the river of reality. Anyway, concepts and uh, generalizations aside, the point I was making earlier was that, on the whole, we tend to resist change, don't we? I mean, for example... Think about how resistant we are to change our minds about things, or how reticent we are in growing from uh, adolescence to maturity, or in facing the different stages of life. 
It's like, um, it's like we're all slightly maladjusted because we don't want to face the reality of change and we don't want to, uh, admit in new information. Or, um, here's another example. Think about how many of us yearn for the good old age of the past and how we, we hate the present state of things and fear the oncoming collapse of civilization. And this, of course, is a very old pattern. I mean, it goes right back to uh, Hesiod and his five ages of man. You know how there's been this, uh, this long passage of continuous degeneration from the Golden Age right down to the Iron Age. But, um, but here's the thing. Maybe what we're doing here is just identifying goodness with sameness and similarity over time. And so, so when change happens, when a, when a rupture suddenly takes place, we automatically, and so unjustifiably, see it as something ominous and bad. Okay, but, um, here's the thing. I have to confess if it's not already obvious to you, uh, to you loyal listeners, that I myself fall prey to this worry and this cynicism about our present and our future age. I mean, today, more than any other, it would seem, I think you could argue that Heraclitus's river is at its highest. It's rising precipitously with all of its uh, swirling eddies and torrents and meandering aimless streams. And um, I really don't mean to be hyperbolic here, though of course I, I may be. But you see, I don't think it's controversial to say that, that our technological world is clearly one that's marked by a tremendous pace and acceleration of life. Where, where everything whizzes by in seconds and then dissipates into thin air. And it's one marked also by, by a growing discontinuity and a fragmentation, not to mention the, the restlessness and the anxiety that all of this, of course, provokes. Okay, now you might say that this is just a, another type of uh, change. So, so big deal. Yeah, but there's... There's something increasingly ungovernable and directionless about what's happening today, I would say. You see, here's the thing. For all of his emphasis on change, at least Heraclitus saw in all of it a kind of, um, a kind of principle of order, something that he famously called the Logos. Now, the Greek word logos is, is hard to pin down, but I think what Heraclitus meant by it in this context is something like this. What he meant is that there's a sort of hidden harmony or, or underlying rhythm or measure or, or proportion that governs change. Now, measure and harmony, those are words worth pausing on. Because where is the direction and the measure behind all the change and all the rush today? We seem to be creating more and more without end or purpose. Burning more coal, building more compute power, creating more nuclear weapons. Exponential growth on all fronts, despite an earth busting at its seams and a looming AI proliferation. 
I don't know, there's something about the ancient Greeks that I've always admired, including Heraclitus. And that is that, that despite their Promethean rebellion and incredible accomplishments, they always eventually supplicated themselves to the wisdom-backed principle of moderation. Moderation. Not just the mother of all virtues, but up until now, the mother of the changing seasons. Listening to the Wisdom of Podcast. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. 